This episode is brought to you in part by TSMA Consulting, the entertainment industry's leading social media firm. You've heard on the podcast from the top people in entertainment how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. Dropping Character is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you make sure your social media represents the quality of your work. I've worked with them personally, and man, did I learn a lot. If you do sign up, make sure you tell them Robbie sent you. All right, let's get on with the show. This is Robbie Ramos, and you're listening to Dropping Character. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. So, Doug, man, first of all, <clears throat> long time coming. You asked me before, right before, right now, if, if we had done this before. I feel like this has been, for me at least, 12 years in the making, 13 years in the making, because I started in this business. Um, I don't know how, how much you know about my career, if I told you in the DMs, but I'm on, I'm on a, uh, a TV show called Heels now. Right. Um, and we had Gary Goldman on uh, as an AD. Oh, I'm texting and, him right now. Oh, well, dude, right when I when I found out he was um, on Entourage, uh, dude, I geeked out with Gary about, you know, the behind the scenes of, of what you guys did on that show. And and I think mostly it's because, you know, I me and, and actually the, the podcast producer of of this podcast, um, who's my boy, best friend. I was the best man at his wedding. Um we connected hard in high school with Entourage, man. Love it. So where were you? Florida or no? Where Miami. Were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami. Nice. Uh, born and raised. And, and we both uh, just hit it off with that show, man. And uh, so it, it's an honor to have you here, man. And yeah, no, I, thanks for having me. Heck yeah, man. So I, I want to start from the beginning with you, Doug. I, I want to talk a little bit about your origin story. How, how, how did you uh, get started in the entertainment business? So I went to Tulane uh, University in New Orleans and um, was on a path to go to law school, which uh, I was not excited about, but it just it just was what it was. It's what my father does, what my brother does. And um, that was just where I was headed. And as senior year was finishing up, I was just like, I can't go to law school. I'm not going to make it. So uh, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. I have no contacts in Los Angeles whatsoever. I don't know a single person in the movie industry, but uh, I wrote my first screenplay uh, my last couple of months of, of senior year in college. Um, I actually met my wife to be on the phone who happened to live in Los Angeles. So uh when I graduated, I told my parents I was going to L.A. to uh, pursue Hollywood, <laughs> do stand up comedy, write screenplays. They thought I was out of my fucking mind. I mean, they, right. they like it wasn't something that they saw me pursuing for the previous 18, uh, 20 years, whatever it was. So they thought this was very shocking. But I left and I went and uh, I actually my my wife to be who's now my ex-wife, but a uh, good, good person. Her parents uh uh, put me up and I lived in their house and I got started. I started doing stand-up comedy and uh, writing and and grinding away like we all do and um, yeah. made my first short film in, in 1990, I think, 91, and got some great actors that I had met 
through different situations in LA, David Schwimmer, pre friends, Johnny Silverman, Ernie Hudson, and, uh, Helen Martin and a bunch of people. And I ended up using that to get, I, I sold it to Showtime actually as a short film, which they aired before the movie, The Player. And uh, I used it to get into the American Film Institute. Uh, I went there for a year. Wait, 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 um, Doug, wait, wait. Cause you're too good at this podcasting thing. Dude. We got to <laughs> take it back. Hold on. Yeah. I got, I want to get, I want to deep dive a little bit into some of the things you just mentioned. So first off the screenplay, that first screenplay that you write in college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how how did you prepare for that? Was it something that did I did start? OK, you just went into it. Ball, yeah. I just I just went and I wrote it in like three days. Um, it was about my college experiences. Um, uh, Steve Levinson, who I went to college with, who ultimately became my manager and and uh, Mark Wahlberg's manager and, and uh, was initially his idea for Entourage. He read that script. Neither of us was even in the business. And, and I remember, I mean, this is 1990. He's like, damn, you can write dialogue, but what's the story? What the hell is this about? <laughs> what, what is it? And, you know, I always like to tell people like that was when fucking writing was fun because I had no idea what I was doing. And I just sat down and blasted shit out and, and kept going. But that being said, I ultimately sold that script. That was the first script I ever sold. I redid it a lot after my first three years in, in LA, but, um, David Schwimmer, obviously friends happened and he became a big star and, and he brought me into Miramax with that story that we worked and we sold it. So that was my first sale. Was but, it the, the waiter, the, the pitch, which one? No, those, those, those were short films. This was a, a movie called, uh, Oh shit. I don't even remember the title, but, yeah. um, but we sold it to Miramax. It never got made. Uh, but I got my first paycheck and um, mm, mm. Um, and started going. But I, I mean, most of what I've I, I've done was going out and doing it on my own. So in 1990, 91, I made that short film where I I begged, borrowed and stole for money to, to make it. But also I got very fortunate. I was doing amateur stand up nights and I was working the mailroom at New Line Cinema Although actually I, I had already been fired, but I still had friends there and I gave out pamphlets to everybody to come see me do stand up because I was raising money for this little short film. Oh. And uh, and Mike DeLuca, who's now an Oscar winning producer and one of the, the, the great guys in this town, he was a VP of New Line at the time. And he came uh, and he wrote a check for ten thousand dollars for uh, this short film um, from seeing your stand up. Uh, from seeing my stand up. Yeah. And I made that short film that I wrote with a guy, which is interesting because we were both in the mailroom. And uh, the other guy in the mailroom that I wrote this with was a guy named Tommy O'Haver, who ultimately he's a very successful director now, but he made a hit Sundance movie. I'm, I'm, I'm Billy's Hollywood uh, first Hollywood screen kisses. I'm forgetting the name. But anyway, he's a very successful director now. And um, we were both in the mailroom together. So it's it's classic, typical, you know, starting at the beginning but at the same time, um, finding ways to make my own stuff early at a time when it's not 2022 and you can make the, the short film I made, I could make for 300 bucks today with an iPhone. But back then I needed a lot and it was probably eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars $19,000, you know? Right. And what happened with the standup, Doug? I mean, if, if, if you're getting basically a $10,000 check from something he saw on your standup, you must have been pretty good at it, man. So what, what was it about the stand up that like, when did that kind of just go away? So, you know, my best friend, I just talked to him about this. One of my best friends from uh, first days of L.A. just opened up for Sebastian Matikowski last week. OK, and he's been touring with Bob Saget 
for 15 years since he met him on the Entourage set. And he started stand-up probably three to five years after I quit. And we talked about it because he was on my podcast on, on the I Do This Hollywood Ways podcast. So Mike Young, who's awesome, he was on the podcast talking about Bob Saget and then all of that stuff. But we talked about my stand-up. And the truth is, I mean, I can't say what would have been, but Mike was a guy like a lot of comics. You have to be he liked that lifestyle. He was OK traveling around, being in a bar till three o'clock in the morning, um, you know, becoming boys with all these comics, which is, you know, something I look at Bob Saget's life and his friendships with Stamos and, and Jeff Ross and all these guys like it, it, it makes me a little envious. But I was always a homebody. I was not a guy who wanted to be in the club. I was not a guy who wanted to sit at a table with 10 guys and and compare uh, material. So I, I I stopped pretty much the second I made that movie and I, I never did it again. I, I And I have some regrets about it and I have no idea whether I would have been good. I mean, you know, people thought I had some raw talent, but I think with stand up. It is putting in the hours. It is working through the, the, the fear and anxiety, which I had tremendous. I was drinking when I'd get on stage and like, you know, um, so it just it, it wasn't for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who knows where that would have led, huh? Because a lot of these comedians, man, with the drinking and the finding a vice to kind yeah. of temper your, your emotions. I was actually just talking to somebody about this because I've always I've always had inklings of like, oh, I want to do stand up. Right. And I. And I watch all the podcasts and I, I, I admire standups maybe almost as much as I admire, let's say, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, right? But, yeah. um, but there's just the hours, dude, the, the manpower that you got to just sit there and come up with these things and then show up and, and, and late nights and all that. I just, I, I don't know, at this point in my life, I have a wife and kids now. It's, I feel like that thing is, you know, that should yeah. be sailed. Um, I mean, I don't think it's ever sailed. You have to figure out what you want to do. I mean, for me, it, it actually, you know, it kind of came full circle when I started doing podcasts. I realized, like, mm. that's what I like to do because I don't have to be in a crowd with real people and I can perform at my own pace and I don't have to worry what they're thinking because yeah. I won't see them, their reactions and whatever. So right. um, and all of the stuff that I did, I mean, stand up for me, which I did for about a year, maybe a year and a half. It was it was really good for me for a lot of things. A storytelling for screenwriting and B for pitching when I had to get into, you know, rooms with people and pitch. So it was, it, there's no, there's no regrets to that experience, but sometimes I do wonder if I would have really, really stuck with it and made it a, a grind. So, yeah, you, you talked a little about John Cryer and, uh, and Schwimmer in those early projects that you did. Um, what was it? Uh, was there something about those guys that you saw early on before they became these huge stars? Well, I mean, well, they had different, yeah. different issues with Schwimmer. Um, he was already on the Wonder Years, but I didn't know who he was. Um, a friend of mine brought him to audition for my first short film. And mm -hmm. uh, and for real, he read one line and I said, you're it. And I was like, this guy is going to be a huge star. And he was on friends within like 18 months of, of that. So I saw that John Cryer was already a, a star. He had done a bunch of movies, TV shows, whatever. But what happened with John um, and again, who knows what would have been. But I wrote this short film called The Waiter that Schwimmer was in and John Cryer yeah. was in. I wrote it for myself to star in it write and direct. I wanted to be, you know, Woody Allen. I wanted to be Albert Brooks. I wanted to do all that mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, 
I don't even know how it happened because I didn't look for John Cryer. Somehow an agent called and said, I heard you doing this. And John Cryer likes it. He wants to do it or something. And I called Schwimmer, who had become a good friend at that point, and said, uh, fuck, John Cryer wants to, to play my role. And Schwimmer was like, let him play it. You'll, 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 you'll write, you'll direct, and, and that's what you'll do. And, and to be honest with you, while I do think I could have been a good stand-up, I don't think acting was my thing. And uh, I was lucky to get John, and uh, he was awesome. So, Steve Levinson, Doug, um, that, that relationship with you guys is an interesting one to me. Because a lot of times on this podcast, we're talking about networking. We're talking about all this shit. And I personally hate networking, dude. Like when I started, when I started acting, it was like, I wanted to do my thing, go home, be with my girl. Like, that's it. Right. Um, But there is a lot of talk about networking. And I think something I've been noticing from different people in the business as I've been doing this podcast is the networking is really, it's got to be authentic, dude. And it's got to be coming from some kind of maybe relationship that you had with somebody uh, like away from acting, right? Or or you have a connection with that person. Yeah. But you say, Steve Levinson, you guys went to college together. Talk to me a little bit about that relationship. So you you moved to L.A. Does he also move to L.A. around the same I, time or what happened? I, move, I moved before him. He actually... Uh, he actually, if I can remember timelines right, he um, he he had a clothing business. He wasn't even in Hollywood, and he wanted to get in the entertainment business. And he was actually a little, as I remembered, a little older than normal because he'd already started his career in something else. And then he decided to come out. And I don't I don't know I don't know where I was at, but he he moved into my apartment, and I went back to New York for a little bit. I can't tell you if this was two weeks, two months, or whatever. The timelines are a little little blurry. But then he started working at an agency and he started rising up and then he started reading my scripts and um, he just had a really good eye for uh, for things and a really good ability to give notes and thoughts and comments. Um, so that's where that relationship started. And he was an assistant as, as far as I remember at, at UTA or, or, or uh, in, I don't even remember, but he was working for Mark Wahlberg's agent and him and Mark struck up a relationship and then they started working together. And uh, he was um, not even really representing me officially, but he brought me the, the movie Kissing a Fool, which I ultimately got David in. And, uh, and, and he was an executive producer on that. And then the same thing uh, with Entourage. He just uh, he, he said, Mark and I were, were thinking about this thing and whatever, and you should write it. And that's where it started. So. Those early scripts, um, what what were some of the writers uh, that that inspired you, man? Because um, at least for me, and and then maybe you can talk about this. It's like uh, the first play I ever wrote, David Mamet, um, was a huge influence, right? So I was kind of like almost mimicking a little bit his tempo, right? It's like jazz yeah. almost. Um, were you doing that with those early scripts? Because you, you, somebody said, I think it was some, it might've been Steve that said, uh, you had the dialogue was, was popping, right? I, I, you know, it's interesting that you even asked that because as a stand-up comedian, I really used to imitate people. Like when I started, I would be like, God, what the fuck am I? And I would go like kind of do Dennis Miller or do Jerry Seinfeld. And I'm not saying good versions of it, but you know, I, I would do that as writing, even though you say, who are my influences? I don't know if it's the influences, but what are my favorite movies that, yeah. especially at that time, it was Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, Scorsese, Barry Levinson, Mamet, um, 
Sorkin, I guess, is already coming around, I think. Um, but I never, ever sat down and wrote a script and thought um, they write like this or they write like that. I always just wrote and writing dialogue was always very easy for me. Story breaking structure. That was always the the, the work, you know. Um, so once I figured out a character, especially because how I usually write are people I know or people I've been around or people I've uh, observed. Um, so I always had a very good ear to be able to like look at you, for instance, and then put you on a page where I think people might recognize that it's you. So that was kind of my skill. What I had to really grind and work to get better at, and I still do, by the way, is is structure and story. Those are the those are the killers. But the dialogue thing came very natural and, and easy to me. How'd you work on that? The structure and the story. Were there books? Were there anything, or, or was it just writing? <laughs> You know, adaptation is one of the most genius movies uh, of all time for any writer to look at. Um, and yeah, I'm not even saying it helps, but books, you know, I mean, Robert McKee's book, which is an adaptation and Save the Cat, which I don't know if it was around yet, but I read it all the time. Every time yeah. I'm writing, every time I'm writing a new project, I read these books and, you know, I, 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 I make jokes about this on the podcast, but I'm in some of these books. And when I write a new <laughs> show and I'm reading shit because Sometimes I'll be working on a story and I'll, I will literally be like, how in the fuck do you do this? How do how do I come up with this? So I did read books and I had Aaron Sorkin on the podcast the other day. And I kind of try to ask him if he ever read like screenwriting books. I think he was like horrified that I even asked him. <laughs> but, but, um, but for me, um, I watch lots of movies and I look at structures and I think about it. But inside of me i know because i've watched so many movies i inherently know structure to a certain degree so there's part of me which is why especially on entourage i used to just write without any thought and figure it out and and that is not the best way to do it but i would get there by just continuing to crack at it crack at it crack at it there are smarter ways to do it which i try to do now which is outlining first and really thinking where your beginning middle and end is but I used to believe and even, you know, when I was in season five of an Emmy nominated show, I used to believe that that writing an outline would destroy the creative process and would stop me from being able to just come up with shit as it came and make it feel more spontaneous. But I don't think that's a true or b healthy or smart to make, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to make things move. Uh, efficiently, but um, that's how I used to do it. Now I try my best. Like I said, I'm starting a new a new project. We're going to shoot in a month, um, but uh, you know that that's that's just what it is. So yeah, so so you have those short films. That let's let's go back to the timeline here. So you have those short films. Um, the first feature. Uh, I know. Right. No, no, no. It's all good, Doug. So Hold I on, know. Let me just text yeah. my daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hold on. Okay. Okay. So, so back to the timeline. Um, we have, so you, you're talking about those short films that you made. And I know, I know Connolly gives you a lot of shit about this fat beach, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to talk about that first feature. So how does, how does fat beach come about? 
So I made that film with John Cryer uh, and Schwimmer, the waiter it was called. And um, I just finished first year at AFI and this producer, Cleveland O'Neill, called me up. I don't even know how he got my number. I don't I don't know if I have an agent yet or what, but he said, uh, you're perfect for this movie, uh, Fat Beach. And I remember when he said it, I thought he said fat bitch, number one. Number two, <laughs> like the word P-H-A-T, you can really look it up in, in 1993, 94. It really is not a common word. Right. And uh, um, I, I didn't know what it was, but he offered me uh, 10,000 bucks to write and direct the movie. I was 22 or 23, 24, whatever I was. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm on a set. We shot for about seven days before we ran out of money. Uh, the movie was down for about six months. And um, uh, a friend of mine, Aaron Weinberg, who was a, a, a producer, saw some footage and said, I can sell this. And he sold it to live entertainment. They gave us a little bit of money and we came back a year later and finished the movie. And then all of a sudden they released it on 400 screens and it's still playing 30 years later on Showtime and has grossed millions of dollars. Not for me. I made <laughs> 10 or 15 grand. But uh, that's that's how it was, you know, and it was not it was not um, it was simply a movie. I was hired to to make the best that I could take somebody else's screenplay, make it funnier, direct it. And, uh, you know, and and I'm very proud that Chris Rock used to get up on his stand up act and make fun of it. And uh, and that it still plays, you know, and Complex Magazine did like a. 20 or 25 year retrospective on it. So it's pretty wild, you know, insane. Yeah. yeah. When you have those six months that you're, you're kind of sitting out waiting for the money to come in. Are you writing other projects? Do you have other things? Already oh, I wasn't, I wasn't waiting for anything that that movie was over. I mean, I was like, Oh, uh, I had a good, I had a good, you know, I was lucky. I got to get on it when you're 22, 23 and someone says, I would have done it for free. Like I'll put you on a set. Here's a camera, go cast it, go shoot whatever you want. So, um, you know, I was excited. I got, by the way, I got Darren Aronofsky from AFI to do the second unit on that. You won't see that on his, you won't see that on his IMDb, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it was just, it was a great learning experience. And I got to, you know, uh, meet some good people and, and learn a little bit about being on a set and especially a low budget set. But we, we turned it into no matter what anyone ever thinks about the movie, we turned it into something pretty remarkable like on this, you know, probably $200,000 independent film that's still playing 30 years later, you know, did, did it open doors, Doug, for you that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually opened a lot of doors, got me my first agent, uh, got me, you know, got me a meeting on Friday. I'm pretty sure that they thought Ice Cube and uh, I'm, I'm I'm blanking on his partner's name. Uh, Alvarez was a great guy. Matt, maybe. But um, I met on that movie Friday. And uh, I think they thought when I got there that I was going to be black. And I'm serious. But um, <laughs> but, you know, people liked the movie. You know, the reviews weren't good and it didn't like light up the box office. But people in town thought it was a, you know, a cute little small movie. So. Right. And then Kissing a Fool comes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, that was actually an interesting story because Steve Levinson got that script because they offered it to Mark Wahlberg. And uh, I probably use this in Entrash somewhere, but Steve, which is like a brilliant manager move, he said, Mark will do it if uh, if Doug Allen writes and directs it. Mark was never going to do it. And um, they said, oh, okay. And I don't think anyone knew who I was, but they hired me because they thought Mark liked me. Um, and then fortunately, the producers, they happened to like me. But then we got David Schwimmer and Jason Lee and uh, Millie Avital and Bonnie Hunt and some other people. So. God, man, Steve is a great manager, dude. He's uh, he's he's and a producer, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, right, right. Um, so, so the movie comes. So you do kissing a fool. Uh, what was that process of making that film? Because now, 
uh, you're dealing with a substantial budget, yeah? I mean, a million. Well, two, but compared, compared to, to right, Fat yeah. Beach, but it wasn't, I mean, you know, David Schwimmer gets paid. These people get paid. Yeah. So, we, you know, we were making it like a low budget film, um, which was great. I mean, that was a totally different experience than Fat Beach. Real professional group of people. Tom Del Ruth, who's an A-list cinematographer, you know, he shot... I don't know, Breakfast Club and and uh, I don't know, many other things. Mm-hmm. Um, Gary Goldman, who's who has worked on Entourage for 15 years, was my AD. And it was just it was a, a great, great group. And uh, we shot that movie in like 28 days, got Wrigley Field and Sammy Sosa in it. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And then Universal picked it up for a good amount of money and released it again, which nobody at the time knew released it like it was a giant studio movie. And it wasn't, it was a million dollar independent movie, but they put it on 2200 screens. It opened the same weekend as the wedding singer. Again, I say this not in defense, but proudly we were the highest, highest exit polls of the weekend, which means when people walk out of the theater, there's a guy there going, Hey, rate the movie. We got an A minus. I think the wedding singer got a B plus. But we didn't make any money. <laughs> so right. the wedding singer made all this money. Kissing a Fool made no money. And legitimately, I had million dollar offers on the table to do X, Y, and Z. And I was waiting around for the right moment and the right thing. By that Monday, I had nothing. I'm not exaggerating. Less than I had before I started that movie. I could not mm. get any meetings, any calls, zero. And, uh, I thought about quitting the business, even though I, I had a kid at this point and a house and oh, uh, had, no. had made two movies that played around the fucking world. And um, but I was pretty dead. So how old um, were you? How old were you, Doug? That's uh, like 96. Or? So no, 96. So what is that? 28, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about going back to law, not going back to law school, going to law school, um, which I didn't want to do. And a friend of mine said I should get into TV, which I'd never done anything in TV whatsoever. Um, and I said, how do I do that? And he said, write a script for your favorite show and we'll, we'll start sending it out to people. So I, I'd already sold probably six or eight feature films, made two that I wrote and directed. Um, and now I'm sitting here for free writing a Curb Your Enthusiasm spec, meaning like mm-hmm. just my own idea of what a curb would look like. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to Steve. Um you know, hey, I'm going to send this out to people. And he read it and he said, you know, Mark and I have this idea. We should talk about it. So I said, oh, you didn't think about me before I wrote this one. But uh, so that's what happened. And that's how it all started. You know? Damn. So but if you hadn't written that spec. If I hadn't written that spec, my career is, is over. Wow. Zero doubt in my mind. I am leaving Hollywood and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. hundred percent. Dude, Doug, that's crazy, man, because there there is so many people in this business that you suggest something like, hey, write a TV thing. And especially at that time, I think you talk about it on, on the podcast that TV is not what it is now. Yeah. I mean, it might have even been an insult to some people of like, no, I do absolutely movies, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. so for you to take that up, man, and to write it is uh is is crazy. Um well, as I say, everything that's ever happened good for me, including what I'm doing now, yeah. The, a the podcast and B the new project that we're shooting that I'm financing and that uh, you know I'm really excited about, everything's been my own self-starting. It's you know, like obviously Levinson was incredibly helpful to me and everything, 
But everything I've ever uh, uh, gotten anywhere with is me going, I'm going to go do this. And it's led to something else. And it's, you know, been, like I said, making that short film, writing that free script in college and after. Um, th those have been the things that have always led to everything. It's never been like, oh, I did Kissing a Fool and my agent called me with, uh, you know, 11 movie ideas and, and I took them. So um, some people get that type of situation, but I never have. So. Me neither, man. Me neither. And I think I don't know about you, uh, but uh, uh, so I've been in the game 10 years, you know, nothing. But the thing is that in the beginning, I, I feel like I had that mentality. Yeah. And then it kind of went away, you know, and then I booked a couple things. And now you start to think like, oh, well, I'm I'm in Hollywood, you know, like they're yeah. asking me to do shit. And then yeah. at some point there, man, you got to realize again, oh, we got to go back to the beginning to what we yeah. did, what got us into the game. You know, I, I believe you never, ever can stop grinding. And I, I did for a few years. I was so bored with this town and these fucking executives and their notes and their garbage. And, you know, again, like entourage, hate entourage. I could give a flying fuck what anybody thinks about it anymore. But, you know, we were nominated for an Emmy and a Golden Globe pretty much every year. We were, you know, President Obama's favorite show. The New York Times said we were the best show on TV when we came out. And and then it was like I was starting over after it was done. You know, it was like, OK, what's this show? And then I get the executives telling me this, that and the other thing, which was the same thing on entourage. When they used to read that script and tell me how bad it was and this and that. And I'm like, OK, I don't know what to tell you, but now I've gone back to the thing. And that's why, like with Victory, the podcast, where now I think we just crossed 10 million downloads. I do what I want. I say what I want. And I'm doing the same thing with the new project. And we'll see, you know, if we can get it out there or not. But either way, we're going to have a great time doing it. And uh, we're going to put everything we got into it. So, yeah. And 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 with so uh, run me by this because I'm, I'm looking at your IMDb and it says 98 is kissing a fool. And then Entourage doesn't come out till. 2003 right so now i'm sure you guys shoot maybe in 2002 this is kind of what i want to get into though there's three years there yeah of kind of what's happening i mean is 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 entourage like the post take i, I mean, mean the uh, pre taking that long or you know entourage you know we sold it and i can't it's it's interesting to even think about the timelines and it's why i say that time can evaporate in this town quickly and if you don't keep moving forward, you will disappear and no one will give a shit. Not your fucking friends, not anybody. And I actually thought it's funny. You said kissing a fool 98. I thought it was 96. So <laughs> if it was 98, I, I'm, I'm on a different uh, train. But we sold it Entourage in 2001. And from the day we sold it to the moment we were on the set was at least 24 months. Um, and that was everything from making a deal to notes on the script. I probably did 40 drafts of that script before they, they greenlit it and then casting, which was at least a six month process. So uh, it was a long grind and there's no, there's no real income coming in during that. You know, I, I mean, I got paid $50,000 to write the entourage pilot, which, you know, as I said, is over two years, you know, and so you have a kid, you have a, a wife, I have right? a kid, I have a wife, I have house payments and, you know, and yeah, you can go in the meantime, sell other scripts if you can do that. But I'm, I'm kind of a one project person at a time. And I was, I was grinding and focused and doing it over and over. And I, I, I wasn't going to stop because I think I realized it was my last shot, you know, mm -hmm. What talk to me about? So you say Steve Levinson comes to you with, "Hey, there's this thing that Mark and I are doing, a TV project. 
What is the actual next step after that, man? Well, it wasn't there's a TV project because there wasn't any project, but we sat down and, and Mark wasn't even there. But I sat down with Steve at the Manhattan Wonton Factory, which was on the, on Melrose Place. I forget what's what's there now, but right across from where. Uh, yeah, like right at the beginning of Melrose Place, not Melrose Avenue. And uh, he pitched me. There wasn't a pitch. It was Mark and his friends, you know, mm-hmm. a show about that crew and uh the name was entourage and i told steve it, it, it was the worst idea i ever heard i said i don't want to watch a show about a bunch of fucking losers who hang on to, to another person it's just it's not how i live it's not how i think and steve said which is honestly was the same thing he said about kissing a fool he gave me that script and i was like i don't like this i didn't have a job by the way i'm like i don't like this is horrible and he's no, like that's, that's fucking crazy dude <laughs> yeah but he said he said, you'll figure it out. And uh, I, I I thought about kissing a fool and I started rewriting it and, and I figured out what I liked. Same thing happened with Entourage. I thought about how I could really make it about a group of childhood friends, which wasn't Mark's story. And again, Mark was so inspirational and amazing in this project, but I had to make it my own thing. And I you know, told them I need to make it New York and I need these guys to be childhood friends and I need it to be, you know, one brother, which a lot of people used to be like, is that Mark's brother? Of course it wasn't Mark's brothers. Mark, Mark's brother's fucking phenomenally successful, Donnie, who I think a lot of people used to be like, is that drama? Of course it wasn't drama. So I really took a lot of the, the, the success of Mark's career and a lot of those Hollywood stories and built it into a group of friends that I grew up with and used the frustrations of my career and the things that had happened to me and kind of, you know, put that in there. And they were obviously, I mean, again, Steve was uh, uh, enormously involved in the, in the scripts as well, but it was really me taking uh, their world and making it my world, you know? And, and so you come up with the idea it's between you Steve Levinson and Mark Wahlberg, right? The idea, the genesis of, of Entourage is like a mixture of you three or, or is it other yeah, people that... I mean... I, when you sold it. I mean, before, like when you say you sold it in 2001. When we when we sold it, it's, it's again, I, I mean, it's Steve and I really grinding. Mark wasn't even in the pitch. You know, we go to HBO with Mark's agent because I don't think anybody had high expectations for this. You know, I was just like, all right, it's another thing that Mark's got going on. So... You know, we went into HBO and I had my, you know, my 20 page pitch and all my character descriptions and everything else. And I'm with my agent and Steve comes in with Ari, the real Ari, um, Emmanuel, who's who's his agent and Mark's agent. I've told this a thousand times, but, you know, I'm ready to say whatever I'm going to say. And Ari goes, you know. Uh, here's the show. It's it's Mark and his friends. This guy's going to write it. If it sucks, we're going to fire him and we're going to hire somebody else to rewrite it. And that was literally the the pitch. And before I got to say anything, they were like, OK, let's let's buy it. OK, which at the moment felt like the greatest victory in, in the history of the world. But I didn't say a fucking word. I mean, I had nothing to yeah. do with it, essentially. Yeah. So. We walked out of there, Steve and I and Ari, and I, I, I had never met Ari. I had never heard of him. But I said two things to Steve. I said, okay, this guy's a character in the show, A, and B, I want him to be my agent. So that kind of uh, led to like a two-year pursuit of me getting this show on the air, which even when I got it on the air, I said, Steve, all right, I want Ari to be my agent. And he was like, yeah, you're not ready. Two 
Golden Globe nomination. I want Ari, you're not ready to, I think it was season two pickup when Steve finally called me and said, Ari wants to sign you. I was like, yeah, maybe let, 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 him, <laughs> let him pitch me. So anyway, that's, that's how it went down. And, and obviously, you know, Steve was involved in every draft of the script, but I would sit alone and write this thing over and over and over, get notes from HBO that were getting, you know, more and more hard to decipher what the hell they were and what they wanted and what their issues were, what they trying to do. And I think looking back at it, you know, Chris Albrecht, who was the, the head of HBO, I think he knew this was a show. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the other executives there did not think that. So I think there were kind of, you know, competing comments that were coming back that were making it very hard for us to decipher what anybody wanted. But we kept grinding. We got through. And finally, they said, OK, let's go shoot it. So that's what happened. When you're when you're in those early days with in a room with Ari Emanuel and and Mark Wahlberg and these guys, man, because I'm trying to put myself in your position, Doug, and the anxiety would be, <laughs> I mean, through the roof, right? Because you're at this point, you're not, you're not established yet in the industry. Yeah. You're given yeah. this, this, I mean, so much pressure to deliver on this project and a lot of power on this project. Yeah. And then you're in the room with somebody who's saying, we'll have him right in. If he sucks, we'll fire him and get somebody else. Yeah. What's your mindset in that moment, man? Because so many people might crumble. In My mindset. You know, since the beginning of my career, my mindset was, and it doesn't matter right or wrong, but my mindset was, I know what I'm fucking doing. Get the fuck out of my way and let me do it. Doesn't matter who it was. I didn't care what Ari had to say. And and it doesn't mean I didn't listen to them. As Mm -hmm. I said, Levinson, Levinson was amazing at at looking Mm -hmm. at the script. And when, when, when Steve thought I got it, I felt good about it. But that being said, I was always going to fight for what I thought was the way to go. And I never was in a room in my entire career, except possibly when Larry David was was one of our first cameos and and was was not understanding why this scene was funny. And uh, I was like so nervous to talk to this guy because he's like, you know, one of my heroes and my idols. And I was like, I feel like I know what to say to him, but I I think he's going to look at me like I'm a moron because it seems so obvious. And when I said to him what I thought, he was like, oh, I get that. And then the scene just, you know, flew. So I've never sat in the room. um, And again, Mark, you know, Mark wasn't in a lot of these early meetings, but Mark was I I don't want to call a friend, but he was just a good regular guy. I didn't look at Mark like the big movie star, because he was a very accessible, regular Joe. And I just, I didn't ever feel like that. But when we were in the meetings, the biggest anxiety about it, and it wasn't that Ari comment. I love that Ari comment because I understood, A, that is the business. And B, I'm going to fucking deliver this if everybody just lets me do it. So, um, and Ari was on board from minute one. And when he got the first script, him and Lev were very, very happy, but HBO was not. So we were all kind of on this team that will keep pushing it until we get there. You know? Yeah. What, where do you think that confidence comes from? Doug? I don't know if it's confidence or delusion, um, <laughs> but I, I've always been a person that, you know, I just, again, there's been, by the way, the insecurities in me from this business have always been like, do I have the 
Do I have the drive and desire to deal with all of the jerk offs that I'm going to have to deal with in this business? And that's the hardest part. There's so many talented people out there that have to get in a room and, and beg and plead and sell and this and that. And you never know who you're talking to, what mood they're in, what other projects are more important to them than this. But uh, I just always had the feeling that I knew how to do it. And, um, and again, there's things that I've done that people hate. So it's not like, um, you know, it's not like uh, I've always been right, but I've never felt like I was in a room that, why am I in this room? I always felt like, let me talk, let me explain to you what I'm doing. And, you know, if you're like-minded, you'll get it. Now, if you hate something like Entourage, which I do think there were certain people at HBO that always hated it, you know, you'll never get it. But um, that's just the way it is. That's the, the, the business. And I think what's so great now is so many of those walls are down, you know, like, A lot of people talk about inclusivity for everybody and equity, which is really, really important. But to be honest with you, it's hard for anybody to come into this town without knowing people and getting into break that club. It just is. So um, I feel it's it's something I'm very proud of. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have anything that was going to going to get me there. And neither did Steve, by the way. I mean, he was Mm -hmm. like. You know, we both started in the mailroom and we both did the grind and we both have have gotten the rejections over and over and over. And you just got to keep going. So I'll be frank. I'm 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 right now in those rooms that you're talking about of pitching things. And I I wrote a play, the same play I I was talking to you about earlier. And man, the the things that you got to go through of people doubting people yeah. like you said having other projects that they might be like it might be a shit meeting dude yeah and you think it's a real meeting you're going in ready you're going talk to me about pitching i want to uh, because you have so much experience with it in terms of the uh, all the projects that you've done and and the people you've been around that that are great masters at pitching yeah um what what's your mindset going into it? How do you prepare? What? Well, it's, it's different than it used to be. Cause I am, I, I honestly think I'm a, I'm a really good pitcher. And the biggest thing about pitching is confidence and making it personal and letting people think that you're giving them something that they want. Now I used to be not like that because my natural personality, it is whether I sound like this and someone will say, Oh, you're fucking cocky. You're arrogant. I'm really not. And I used to walk in like, I think it's going to be good. Uh, You know, I got this idea and I'm hoping, you know, the truth is it's like any sales. You fucking go in there and you lie your ass off and you tell them it's the fucking best thing in the world. And I don't mean arrogantly, but you give them passion about how much you love this idea and how much you're feeling about it. And that's what it's got to go. I mean, pitching to me is just really, it's sell, it's selling. You said you like Mamet. It's, it's Glenn Gary, man. It's like walking in there and obviously you should really believe what you're saying, but you got to convince people that you think it's great and explain to them why it is great. And, uh, there's no room, sadly, for humility or anything like that. You just got to sell. And, um, you know, uh, as I said, I've gotten pretty good at pitching. I despise it. I despise executives, and, uh, but it is what it is, you know. On that note, was there a storyline or something on or anything on Entourage that you that you tried to pitch to HBO that that they didn't let you do? No, I mean, after the pilot, when we got 
luckily, critically good reviews and everything. They were very good. Now, Carolyn Strauss, who's, uh, you know, an awesome exec who did, you know, Game of Thrones and ran HBO. She she would tell me if there were things that she didn't like and she would say, but it's your show. So there were definitely things she said that I I definitely put into consideration and decided whether she was right or, or I disagreed. So do you do you feel like you ended Entourage the way you wanted to, Doug? No, of course not. I mean, they canceled us. And, you know, we I used to I used to constantly say, oh, they didn't. But, you know. Chris Albrecht left, Carolyn left, and there were new executives and they wanted to do new shows. In my opinion, most of them sucked, especially right after us. And um, but they canceled us. And then the movie, I didn't really want to do the movie. I thought like it's a TV show. As much as I shot it cinematically and try to make it a movie, I, I thought and in it's a shame if HBO Max was around today we would have done another season rather than a movie. And I think it would have been received far better than it was. So I got to be honest, man. I was, I was one of those fans who I think wanted, wanted it to keep going down that dark road that you were taking Vinny on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, a lot of people didn't like that. I tried to know dude. different, yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, I think um, for me, uh, you know, what you asked about stand up one of the things that was hard for me for stand up was to to repeat myself over and over and over so uh, i wanted to try something different some people liked it some people didn't but uh, the movie which you know jimmy kimmel that fucking asshole made some nasty comment about it last night which is so crazy it was oh, seven years ago yeah wow. he compared our, he compared our, our imdb rating to joe biden's approval rating so um and again like i said earlier and you can google it and look it up our exit polls uh that weekend were phenomenal our box office was not, but people who liked the show liked the movie. And we also tested the movie, which the president of Warner Brothers told me, you'll never see test scores this high again in your career. That's how excited they were about the movie. Now, I think personally, we hit the Me Too movement and people didn't want to hear guys talking about girls in this way, which is fine. But um, I, I think if you like the TV show, the movie was not some horror show. That being said, I would have preferred to make uh, another eight episodes rather than try to jam it into a 90 minute movie. So I didn't know that about the Kimmo, man. What's weird that about that is, yeah. yeah, what's weird about that is, is he comes from the man show. You know what? It's they not had even it. weird because he's got some fucking hack writer, some bitter little fucking jerk off who, uh. who wrote that last night. And again, I don't want to take it too personally, but when you wake up on a f seven, eight years after your fucking movie came out and some guy who was on the show, by the way, right. yeah, 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 that's like a right. friend of the show. And then you go all these guys that are that are talking about the new world of being kind and being this. And I'm like, and again, it's a stupid joke. I get it, whatever. Yeah, but you know yeah, what? Yeah. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I can imagine, man. Yeah. Did you did you start writing the reboot already, Doug? Or what, how we how I we have, looking on that I, reboot? I, to be honest, yeah. I, I haven't thought about the reboot once. I, um, I'm doing something now with Kevin Dillon and Kevin Connolly. I want to get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. So, so that's what I'm focused on now. I've honestly never thought about the reboot. When we started the podcast, I I I realized how much I missed everybody, and I said, "Listen, yeah. if HBO wants to call and give me some money, we'll talk about it." But other than that, I'm I'm doing my own thing, you know. Talk to me about this new new project. So, is it a TV series that you're doing, like a pilot, or you're doing a film, or what? What? What is it's, it's a little indie, and uh, I I we'll, we'll see where it goes. But um, 
you know, for the last couple of years during this pandemic, I've been trying to figure out. And again, I'm not trying to compare myself to, to anybody, but Alexander Payne and Sideways have been a movie that uh, I've loved my whole career and the tone, the, the everything about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting my uh, midlife crisis. Like <laughs> sadly, a lot of us are. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to do something that, you know, that speaks to some of that while still being funny, entertaining and, and kind of some of the themes that were in Entourage, which are family, loyalty and all of that stuff. So um, I've been working with, uh, you know, Charlie Sheen for almost two years now since we first met. Um, you know, we did a podcast. He came on the podcast. We've talked about other things. And I finally like came up with this. So we've got Charlie and Martin, which is, you know, one of my favorite actors of all time, Martin Sheen, um, Kevin Dillon, Kevin Connolly, Jamie Lynn Siegler, um, you know, and a bunch of other people and some other big surprises are going to be cool. And we're shooting in a month and uh, uh, there's no notes. It's all what I think. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> Congrats, brother. Congrats Thanks. on that, man. Thank so uh, uh, how how did you navigate, Doug? Because you're a driven dude, man. And and we've been talking about your resume here is extensive and all the work you've been doing and being the showrunner. Uh, I don't know if you know Michael Malley. Do you know Michael Malley at all? I don't know him personally. I know he is. So Mike is the showrunner for Heels and yeah. man, getting to see the amount of work that this guy does, dude. Yeah. I haven't thought about Heels in, you know, months. He's been working all throughout the break yeah. Yeah. on what this season two is yeah. going to be. Well, that's what but- I love about the new world of podcasting and everything. People can actually understand because what happens with a TV show, a good one or a bad one. Yeah. The actors come in especially on a good one, they get all the credit and then they forget about it. And I don't just <laughs> yeah. mean me. I mean, yeah. all the writers I had, all the directors, all the crew members. And I think this new world lets people really appreciate the process. And, you know, I've said it before and I'm not trying to, you know, people could go, why'd you waste all your time? But I, I grinded my life away for 10 years on Entourage. It was 24 seven to me and actors come in, they get a script, they complain about it, they show up and it doesn't mean they don't kill it. And it doesn't mean there's any show without all of the great actors I had. But there also is no show with all the great writers I had, directors and crew members. And honestly, me killing myself for 10 years and sitting in a shower thinking about what Johnny drama might do tomorrow (laughs) and being on vacation and thinking what Ari could do now. And I think, you know, that's what people kind of miss in, in the process, which I think people are really starting to appreciate in 2022 that these things don't just appear on screen. And while you, while of course there are actors that, that, you know, transcend the whole show and take over. And it's like, okay, if you get Brad Pitt or Leo or something, you know, it doesn't really matter what the script looks like, but the truth is, is it really does start with that first blank piece of page and you got to grind your way through it. And you got to find those people that can, can, come on and do it. And the great thing about this new project is now I've included everybody from the beginning. So it wasn't like this on Entourage. We worked for two years before an actor ever saw a piece of paper. On this one, I've worked with all of them. They've all read everything from from minute one. And we're all kind of doing this together in a real creative process. And I brought, you know, my whole team from Entourage. You said Gary Goldman. Gary Goldman is you know, producing this. And yeah. I've got my cinema, one of my cinematographers from Entourage, costume designers and, and uh, uh, production designers. So it's, it's going to be like this family getting back together again. You know, I hear you, man. And speaking of family, my one of my, so I got two more questions for you, Doug, and then I'll let you go. Cause I've, yeah. I've, I've held you here too long. One thing is, man, 
you tell me you have the kids, you, 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 you know, you, you're a family guy. How do you navigate having that much drive that you have and, and, and caring for a family? You know, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, and not caring for them, obviously you can take care of them, but you know, you want to be present for your kids as often as you can. And, you know, one of the reasons why I was pretty content not working for the last few years and um, is that I, I got to, you know, be with my kids where I wasn't sitting there while they're talking about their problems. And I'm thinking about what the next episode is like and how I'm going to get this done and how I have to cast this. So, you know, I think the, the great ones and Mike O'Malley probably is because he's done so much shit. You really got to find a balance or you're going to lose your mind. And, uh, and um, you know, I think there are plenty of people who do it in a way that they find both. Um, I'm going to, for this next one, I'm making it a priority. And my kids are older now. They don't care to spend as much time with me as I would like. But I'm making it a priority to make sure that I enjoy this, that I don't just, you know, grind away and that I actually make it a fun process and that I surround myself with other people who feel the same way so that we can do both have yeah. our own personal lives and do hopefully good work, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Um, Doug, last question. So we have a lot of, a lot of people that are starting out in the business um, that are going to be listening to this to, to take advice. So let's say that we stripped away all your contacts in Hollywood, your history, right? Your resume has gone. Yeah. No one knows you. Nobody knows Doug Ellen. You want to make a movie. You wrote this script. With the knowledge that you have about the business now, you still have the knowledge. You lost everything else, though. What's your first steps to getting this thing made? I mean, the hardest thing about, you know, making a movie is obviously putting together a, a talented crew and a talented cast. Um, so me, the first thing is, is to grind away until you have a script that you just feel is, is foolproof. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you go out, there's a lot of talented people that want to work and the amount of money that you need to raise to make a movie is, you know, is so much different than it was back then. Obviously, if, you know, if you're the kind of filmmaker that wants to make Star Wars or something like that, that's a different issue. But if you want to make something like a sideways, if you want to make something, you know, like that kind of thing, which I think are the, are the smart ways to look at it when you're, you know, making a small movie. I think, you know, Quentin's like an example. And, um, you know, when he made Reservoir Dogs, he clearly sat out to make something that could be made as inexpensively as possible while still showcasing his his talents. And, you know, like the Apple commercial that's on now where they're showing you scenes that people are shooting on an iPhone. You can really do things very inexpensively. So, um I think the thing to do now is if you know nobody is to get a great script and then start putting together some pieces one by one of talented people and keep it as small as you can. And then we all know that the Internet is out there. Good things will get seen and you can get things going that, you know, 25 years ago when I made short films, I had to walk around with a VHS tape and go, will you please watch this? Now you can get it out there. And if you get a little bit of traction and you will, if it's good, then you're on your way, you know? Awesome, Doug. Man, I can't thank you enough for, for taking your time. And, and um, bro, <laughs> I've got an enormous amount of respect for you and so grateful for you and all the work you've done, Doug. Thanks, man. I appreciate it and uh, be yeah. good. Yeah, likewise, brother. Thank all you. All right, see ya. See ya.
This episode was brought to you in part by TSMA Consulting, the entertainment industry's leading social media firm. If you sign up for any of their management packages at tsmaconsulting.com, make sure to tell them Robbie sent you for an exclusive 15% off the first month. Thank me later.